was amazing. We're still celebrating uh, all God did last week on Easter weekend. We had uh, 205 baptisms across all of our campuses. That's amazing. We celebrate that. And uh, we had uh, over 20,000 people physically that joined us, another three or 4,000 people online. So just amazing to see all that God did. And uh, I want to thank our staff and all of our volunteer teams at all of our campuses, from parking lot to connections to kids ministry to worship production. Thank you so much for pulling all that off. Uh, let's just express our appreciation to everybody who served. Couldn't do it without you. And uh, I just want to welcome uh, all of our campuses right now, all of our guests and first-time visitors. We're really, really glad that you're here. Today, we are beginning a new four-part series of messages called 4 by 8 And what we're doing is we're going to spend four weeks looking at one of my favorite chapters and one of my favorite books in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And uh, many theologians have described the book of Romans as the Mount Everest of the Bible. And chapter 8 as the Mount Everest of Romans. In fact, uh, one theologian said that it's the clearest explanation of the gospel message. Uh, Another said that if you can understand the book of Romans, then you can understand the entire Bible. And and if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's written by this guy named Paul. And he writes it to a group of believers living in the city of Rome. But here's what I really want you to know about the book of Romans. This is Paul at his absolute best. Like Paul has had his like dark roast coffee. Like he's awake. He's had his pre-workout. Like he's, he's ready to go. And he uses human language at its absolute best to describe the message of God that can absolutely change anyone's life. In fact, one of my favorite theologians, a guy by the name of J.I. Packer, I love what he says about the book of Romans. He says, if the message of Romans can get into your heart, there is no telling what may happen. And man, I I can personally testify to that. I I grew up a church kid. I was in church like all the time, like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I went to Sunday school. I went to uh, Sunday evening Sunday school, which is called church training, by the way. And uh, I, I was like in Bible, like sword drills. Like I, I went to church camp. Like I knew all the stuff. And, and there was a lot of benefits to being a church kid. There's some downsides to it, too. Here's the biggest one. I knew so much. I knew just enough to actually keep me inoculated from all of it. Sort of like a spiritual flu shot. Like when you get a, a flu shot, what's happening is you get a little bit of it to kind of make you immune from all of it. And many of us that grew up in church or grew up with religion, that's what ended up happening. Like you got just enough Bible knowledge to sort of keep you from Jesus, as, as weird and as ironic as that sounds. And so I was a good kid, and I knew the Bible, and I knew all the Sunday school answers, but it didn't mean that I knew Jesus. In fact, I don't think that I really did. And one day when I was 17 years old, I started reading the book of Romans on my own. And it wasn't because a Sunday school teacher asked me to. It wasn't for an assignment. I just started reading it for myself. And when I got to chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, it was as if my whole world shook. Because it was as if God was saying these things directly to me. Now, as we begin to launch into this study together, it's like four weeks, so I'm going to divide chapter 8 into like four parts, bringing kind of four fundamental truths out of this. I just want to acknowledge right up front what maybe some of you have already thought, in that diving into Romans chapter 8 without kind of 
having studied and read the first seven chapters, uh, could be a little bit dangerous in this sense. If Romans 8 is the Everest of the Mount Everest of the Bible, then diving into Romans 8 is like getting in a helicopter and going to the literal peak of Mount Everest and being dropped off. Like, uh, we're not acclimated, we could run out of oxygen, we could freeze to death, and that could happen to some of us. And so here's what I want to ask you to do during this series. You're just going to get more out of it if you do. Just start reading Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 on your own. Take you maybe 15, 20 minutes a day. Just begin to read it. Here's what, how I want to ask you to read it. Don't read it as a textbook. Read it as a personal letter from God to you because that's what it is. Now, if you have a Bible or a device with the Bible on it, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. We're going to read the first four verses together. And as you're turning there, I just want to kind of place this question in front of all of us at all of our campuses just to kind of get us thinking about this. And it's just simply this question right here. What does condemnation feel like? Now, the word condemnation isn't necessarily a word that pops up in our everyday vernacular. And come to think of it, neither is the word vernacular. Um, but we don't often use the word condemn or condemnation in our everyday language. So, so what does that really mean? Well, let me kind of define it for us. The word condemnation simply means this. The expression of very strong disapproval. And we all know what that's like. We, we all know what that feels like. We all know what it's like to maybe seek the approval of someone and never get it. And it could be a father. It could be a mother. It could be a sibling. It could be a friend, a boss. It doesn't matter. Just somebody that we're always performing for. They don't even maybe even realize it, but we do. And we never get the approval we so much long for. And that feels like condemnation. That feels like rejection. That feels like I'm a failure. Condemnation feels like shame. In fact, I would even say that how, here's how condemnation works in our lives. It's a cycle of, of circumstances or decisions in which we find ourselves in that then leave us with this empty feeling of shame and guilt. And maybe we feel hopeless or worthless. We feel sort of like hemmed in on all sides, wondering if I'll ever get this thing right, wondering if I'll ever be free from the things that I struggle with. Here's what condemnation looks like. Oh, I'm well aware of some things in my life that I need to change. I don't have a clue how to change them. I don't know the way forward. I don't know exactly what I should do. Condemnation oftentimes sounds like your own voice. It's the things that you say to yourself when no one else is around and you don't know and that you don't think that anybody else is listening. I was listening to an interview not long ago that a friend of mine uh, sent to me from Conan O'Brien. He's a comedian, and, and by all practical purposes, you look at his life and you say, man, this guy's arrived. Like, he's got his own talk show, and he's been popular for uh, years and years and years, and he was being interviewed, and he got real, real vulnerable, and he said that late at night, he'll oftentimes wake up in the middle of the night, have to use the restroom. He'll go into the restroom, still half asleep. He's in there doing his business, and all of a sudden, he'll have a thought about earlier in the day, or maybe yesterday, or last week, in which he told a joke that bombed. Or maybe he did an interview where it didn't seem to be going very well. And here's what'll happen. While he's in there in the bathroom, middle of the night, in the dark, he'll say out loud, you stupid idiot. The next morning, his wife goes, who are you talking to? myself right and I listened to that and I thought man I can totally relate to that any of you relate to that 
Any of you have this like moment where you walk away from a conversation going, man, you stupid idiot, I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, all the time, from, from, from this building to my drive home on Sunday afternoons, there'll be times, oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. Man, I shouldn't have tried that joke. I should have listened to my wife. She told me not to say it, but I said it anyway. And it's just like this whole, like, you just sort of like beat yourself up. It's just this sort of like negative self-talk. You find yourself in that cycle of shame and embarrassment and guilt. Condemnation feels like I feel stuck in this particular pattern of behavior that I don't quite know how to break out of. When I was in uh, Bible college, um, in fact, uh, Bible college, if you don't know what it is, it's just a college in which trains men and women to serve in full-time ministries, pastors and worship leaders and missionaries and and I lived on the dorm for, in the dorms for most of my years there. And you would think that living in the dorms of Bible college, that we would all be like super squeaky clean and we would have just spent all of our days, uh, you know, playing Bible Pictionary and listening to Caleb. But that's really not how any of it went down. In fact, uh, I won't even tell you what happened in the dorms, but uh, particularly my room. But anyway... Um, I remember one Saturday night I was sitting in my room alone uh, studying or doing something and most of the dorm floor was kind of cleared out and uh, I got a knock at the door and I looked up it was my friend Dave and uh, Dave was from Alaska and he had uh, come to Missouri to go to Bible college he didn't have a car on campus and Dave said hey Brockett would you take me to the video store to drop off some videos that I rented now just that statement right there is dating me a little bit those of you of a certain age this was prior to the days of live streaming and downloading. And so if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to get in a car, drive to a store, walk the aisles, pick out the movies, check them out. They gave you three days to watch them. Otherwise, there was late fees. And then prior to DVDs, there was this thing called VHS that actually you had to be kind and rewind. All right. And so very, very dark days uh, in our past. And uh, so I'm like, yeah, sure, man, I, I could use a break. Let's, let's go get some fresh air. Maybe we'll run through Taco Bell on the way back. And so we go to the video store. I pull up outside, and here's what he did. He handed me the videos. He said, would you go uh, run them up to the little slot and drop them off? I was like, dude, drop them off yourself, man. I drove you here. And he insisted. He just goes, no, seriously, Brockett, like take them. And so I, I, I grab them, and I, I get out of the car, and I'm walking around to drop them off at the slot. And I look down, and I wish I hadn't of. Uh, let's just say they were movies that a Bible college student shouldn't be watching. And uh, immediately I was like, whoa, whoa. Like, and I, I ran over, dropped him off in the slot, went back into the car, sat down. Dave's looking out the window, wouldn't even look at me. Here's what he said. He goes, did you see what I rented? I said, yeah. And he goes, what do you think? And I was like, what do you want me to think? And I'll never forget what he said next. He goes, I'm so tired of fighting this battle I just needed someone else to know. You ever been there? Now maybe that's not your issue, but there's something. Right now, you're fighting this battle and it could be, uh, it could be depression, it could be materialism, it could be anxiety, it could be anger. What is it for you that you were just like, I'm so tired of fighting this battle. It's just like this cyclical thing. It's like I keep getting faced with this decision, and then I fall into it. I, I mess up again, and then I feel empty, and I feel shamed, and I feel guilty, and I don't know how to change it, but I know something needs to change, and it's just like this cycle that we find ourselves in. What's happening? Well, in the book of Genesis, it actually tells us what happened. And you've probably heard the story before, and whether you believe it or not, maybe some of you kind of scooted aside or whatever, but here's what happened. 
In the book of Genesis, it describes how God created the universe, and when he did so, he breathed life into a man and a woman. It's what sets us apart from everything else in the universe. God breathed his spirit into us. The Greek word for that is pneuma. But then whenever we rebelled against him, whenever we chose to sin, that's all sin is. It's just giving into pride. It's just choosing to follow my own logic rather than trusting in God. What happened when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God is it knocked the spiritual wind right out of them and us. And so now today, we're all breathing oxygen. At least I hope you are. Check your neighbor. Make sure they're breathing. We're breathing oxygen. We're inhaling and exhaling into our lungs. But we are gasping for air. Whole different kind of air. It's a spiritual air. It's that wind of God that got knocked out of us whenever we fell into sin. It's the result of a broken world. Now, this wind of God has a name. It's actually very personal. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he's mentioned 21 times in Romans chapter 8. And Paul's intent here is not just to give us a theology or an understanding of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, that's oftentimes what we reduce it to when we talk about him. But it's to show us how the Spirit of God breathes life back into people who are gasping for air. So let me back up and get a running start into Romans 8 by reading the last couple of verses in chapter 7. And what I want you to notice is notice that Paul himself is gasping for air when he writes these words. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Negative self-talk. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Very similar to what my friend Dave was saying to me in the car that night. And then he answers it. Thank God. The answer isn't in my behavior. The answer isn't in my knowledge. The answer isn't all upon me or cleaning myself up. The answer isn't a person in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. Man, I want to please him. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Now, at all of our campuses, let's just read verse 1 of chapter 8 out loud together because I really want us, this to sink in. Here, here we go. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. It is as simple as that. Listen to me. That is the gospel message. In fact, I would even maybe go as far as to say that if Romans is the Mount Everest of the Bible and chapter 8 is the Mount Everest of Romans, then verse 1 is the Mount Everest of chapter 8. Are you following me? This is like inception. All right? It's just a, it's like there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, hidden in Christ. Now let me read the rest of the passage. I'm going to make some observations. Verse 2. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit, the wind of God, has freed you from the power of sin, that cycle of condemnation that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did, past tense, what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end. I love how definitive that is. He declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his, his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for who? For us. 
I'm going to explain what that means here in a minute. Hold on. Who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Here is the essence of what Paul is saying here. He's saying there are these two incredibly powerful things that are going on in your life right now, whether you realize it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you would say that you believe in God and follow Jesus or not. The first is just the power of sin. It's there whether you use those terms or not. You know right now, whether you're unsure about whether there is a God, that at times there are thoughts that you have that you go, where in the world did that come from? And decisions that you make that go, man, that is so incredibly selfish. There's just this like power or this lure of sin that's in all of our lives. And it's there from a very, very early age. None of us have to be taught how to do it. We just come kind of hardwired into it. Because we live in a broken world. I've got four kids at home. I've had to teach them how to do all kinds of things. I've had to teach them how to walk. I've had to teach them how to talk. I've had to teach them how to eat. I've never once given a lesson on how to sin. They're really good at it. Because I'm really good at it. And so we learn from a very age, not only do we know how to sin, but we learn that it actually is uh, at least temporarily somewhat gratifying. It's fun. It's enjoyable, at least for a moment, but it's kind of like a numbing sort of a pain, like a narcotic. It's not a lasting sort of fulfillment. And so we learn from a very early age, one day, man, it feels really good to blame my sister. It feels really good to punch my brother. I think I'll do it again. And then we grow up kind of doing this, and we know there's so many decisions. Have you ever made a decision where you knew ahead of time, this is the wrong decision to make, but I'm going to do it anyway? It's the power of sin that's in our lives. It's spiritual cotton candy. It promises a nice little taste at first, but it doesn't satisfy. There's a second power that's at work in all of our lives, and I would simply describe it this way. The promptings of the Holy Spirit. And the promptings are always much more subtle than the power of sin. And the reason why is because the Holy Spirit is the one speaking into our lives. And the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will never impose himself upon a closed heart. But he's always speaking. Now, some of you, uh, maybe you have a pretty good understanding of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you don't. Maybe depending upon the church that you grew up in, if you grew up in church, uh, maybe uh, you... uh, are really familiar with the Holy Spirit and and really uh, comfortable around talking about that. Others of you, maybe not. I kind of grew up in a church tradition where we didn't talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. Like we acknowledged his presence, but we weren't quite sure what to do with him. Sort of like whenever Lindsay and I started dating, I kind of grew up in the suburbs of a mid-sized city and not really did, I didn't really, was ever out in the country all that much, but Lindsay's family are kind of country people and they have farms and they like to hunt and they fish and they wear lots of camo and Ride around on four-wheelers. And so when I started to hang out with them and go to the family dinners, like, I'd show up in my, my Sperry's and my Vineyard Vines. And uh, <laughs> I'd sit down at the table for some barbecue. And they, like, they're talking about, like, turkey hunting and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And, like, and they, they're looking at me like they're acknowledging that I was there. They just didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> and many of us, that's how we sort of treat the Holy Spirit Let me just kind of give you just a little bit of a crash lesson in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity because God comes to us as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is is always pointing towards Jesus, and then Jesus always sort of points back to the Spirit. Could I say it this way? The Holy Spirit's always alley-ooping to Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't want to be made much of. The Holy Spirit's always pointing to the source of our salvation. But here's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. As he's talking to his disciples before he's getting ready to be crucified and go to heaven. He says, hey, listen, I'm going to be away from you for a while. I promise you I'm going to come back. But while I'm away, I'm going to give you my spirit as a deposit. And then he says this. Better to have the spirit of God in you than to have me with you. What that means is one day whenever you and I get to heaven and we see the disciples, we're going to probably walk up to them and we're going to go, man, what was it like to hang out with Jesus, man? What was it like when he walked on water? And What was it like when he fed the 5,000? What was it like? And you know what they're going to say? They're going to go, what was it like to have the Spirit in you? Because Jesus said it's better to have the Spirit in you than to have him with you. And so the Holy Spirit of God... is the wind of God. It's the breath of God. And he's the one who prompts you and is speaking to you even right now. I mean, if you responded to Jesus, it's not because you were smart enough to do so. It's because the Spirit of God led you to that place. And so now we've got the power of sin and the prompting of the Spirit. And here's the deal. Once you become aware of this epic battle that's going on, then you've got to figure out how to fight it. And many of us choose to fight it in all the wrong ways. Many of us choose to fight this battle by white-knuckling moralism. And we say, well, I'm just going to try to try really hard. I'm just going to make all the right decisions. And I'm just going to try to resist the temptation. And listen, every time you just end up resisting temptation in your own power, all you do is make it stronger. If you just try to resist lust by just trying really hard not to lust, you just make it stronger. If you just try really, really hard not to be so greedy, all you do is you just make it stronger. Because you're fighting the battle uh, in the way of the flesh and not the wind of God. I think that we're like sort of like in junior high when we begin to recognize this battle. At least that was true for me. And uh, I've never shared this uh, publicly with with anyone. We'll, We'll see how it goes. It went okay last hour. But when I was in junior high, I began to realize just sort of this battle that was going on. Like I would have these thoughts and I would feel ashamed of it or I would, have the, I would do something and I'd immediately feel guilty. And I was like, how do I, how do I change? How do I do that? And I, I'll never forget, it was one Saturday afternoon. I had my headphones on and I was listening to Boys to Men. All right, because it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday. And uh, <laughs> so I'm listening to these guys, I'm kind of jamming out. And uh, I'm opening their fridge and I'm looking into, to, to look, I'm hungry, look for a snack. And I honestly can't even remember what the thought was, but a thought flashed through my mind that I immediately felt ashamed of. (laughs) And so here's what I did. I'm getting super vulnerable with you. I looked down at the ground and I said, get away from me, Satan. (laughs) And I said Satan in those two pronounced syllables, just like that. I was like the church lady. I was like, Satan, right? Just get away, right? (laughs) And I kid you not, my dad walked right around the corner and he had heard everything. And immediately I felt so embarrassed. And he looked at me and he goes, what are you listening to? Are you listening to that heavy metal stuff again? I was like, no, it's boys to men, dad. It's all right. It's good. Yeah. And for so long I tried to like fight this like spiritual battle in my, in my own strength. And even today there are times when I'm trying to fight this battle. And here Paul tells us that God declared an end to sin's control. Well, How? Well, he says, by the Spirit of God, let me breathe the Spirit of God back into you. And so here's what I want us to see this, is that actually 
temptation, we're all going to continue to be tempted until the day we die. I'll never forget talking to like this 85-year-old man at a men's conference one time, and he was just like, oh, fellas, I'm struggling with lust. And I thought, really? <laughs> like I thought once you got past like, you know, 50, that that like went away. He's like, nope, nope, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I'm like, man. You know, it's like, it's like you're gonna, we're, not, we're gonna continue to struggle with temptation until the day that we die. So, so, so what do we do with it? Even as Christ followers, here's what I want you to see. Temptation can be an opportunity to grow closer to God. How? Step into the light instead of running and hiding. Spiritual growth is found in handling temptation the right way, in fighting it in the ways of the Spirit, not in your own flesh. Psalm 51.17 says that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. So that means that God will always welcome you as long as you're being honest. God will always say, man, come to me as long as you're being authentic. You're not trying to hide anything. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did? They ran and they hid. And I sometimes wonder if things might have been different if they wouldn't have hid. They would have just stepped into the light. Because God has said, listen, I'm actually fulfilling all of my just requirements. And all of my grace is found in the person of Jesus. There is no condemnation for those of you that are in Christ Jesus. Now here's the automatic thought that some of you are having. Well, that just seems too easy. <laughs> that just seems too easy. One of my favorite uh, conversations that I was told about last weekend out of the 205 people that responded and got baptized was there was this gentleman that went backstage after the message and he was talking to the campus pastor and he said, you mean to tell me that all I got to do is just have the faith of a mustard seed and take a small little step of faith and put my trust in what Jesus did for me and I can be forgiven and saved and loved? And our campus pastor looked back at me and he goes, yep. And here's what the guy said. Oh, I want that. And you notice the spiritual thirst in that statement? That, that, that gasping for air? Like, man, are you telling me that that's what it requires? Now here's what some of us, some of us might step back and go, well, that just seems too easy. Who in the world told you that? There's nothing easy about it. It was incredibly hard. Jesus was the one who actually endured it for you. That's why the cross is so bloody and why the crucifixion is so brutal. And I don't know if you saw that, you know, Passion of the Christ movie when it came out like 15 years ago. But there was, a, I mean, I knew all of the, what went into Roman crucifixion. There was a point as I was watching that movie where I was like, all right, man, just enough. Like, I got the point. Like, I just can't watch this anymore. It's why it got an R rating. And it wasn't because, what was made the cross so painful and brutal wasn't just the beatings and the blood. It was my sin. It was Jesus shouldering all of that upon himself so that you and I wouldn't have to. You take that aside. It's not too easy. Because for you and I just to take a tiny little step of faith requires us to scale a mountain of pride. And that's what's blocking some of you from receiving something that is so, so good and laid out for you right now. Now some of you may say, okay, so the gospel message is we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on a cross. All right, got it. Okay, so why are there so many rules? Ever wondered that? Like it seems like there's so many rules in Christianity. It seems like there's all these laws, like all the Old Testament stuff. There are. There are over 600 Old Testament laws in the Bible. So why are there so many rules? Well, Paul actually answers that back in chapter 7, uh, in verse 7. Here's the clearest description for the purpose of the law. All right, you ready for it? The law shows me my sin. 
That's it. That's the only purpose of the law. The law shows me that I'm a sinner. In order for you to understand how amazing grace really is, you've got to come face to face with how destructive your sin really is. And the trouble isn't with the law. The, the law is perfect. The law shows us who God really is and what he desires for us. The trouble with the law is me. It's my ability to follow through with all of it. I can't. In fact, the Bible even says that if you followed all the laws and messed up on one, then you're guilty of all of it. That we just can't possibly do it. And God knew that. That's why he didn't, he didn't relax the law. He fulfilled it. In the person of Jesus. Let me describe it this way for some of you maybe still kind of struggling to get your head around this. Um, my wife's grandparents back in the late 1980s purchased uh, a little condo out in uh, Colorado, about, a west, um, uh, about an hour west of Denver. And nothing fancy, just a little condo uh, where you could uh, visit. And uh, they don't get up there much anymore because uh, due to their age and the altitude really bothers them. But they've kept the condo. Praise Jesus. And... Uh, <laughs> And they have uh, given uh, all the kids and grandkids keys. And they've just said, uh, you know, you can use the condo and we want you to enjoy it. And so uh, once or twice a year, we'll try to make it out there. Here's what uh, you will find when you walk into the condo. Is you'll find it all in, uh, it's clean, it's in order, it's, it's ready for the next guest. And here's why. You, we walk into the kitchen, we walk up to the refrigerator, and there's a list of house rules. And the house rules say things like this. Thou shalt empty the trash before you leave. Thou shalt not have any pets on the premises. Thou shalt wash thy bedding before thy departeth. All right, it's, it's all written in King James. It's very odd. All right. <laughs> There's some fun stuff on there too. Like, hey, here's the code to the clubhouse where the hot tubs are. That's my favorite rule. And we're just going to read through all that. Now, here's the thing. Depending upon how I read the house rules kind of determines the heart and the intent behind it. So if I were to read the house rules and go, man, like they're putting so much stipulations on our relationship. Like, Lindsay, I really don't like the fact that your grandparents are kind of hovering over us, like telling us we have to do all these things in order to stay in the family. Like their love and their acceptance of us is based upon my ability to take out the trash. I'm reading the rules wrong. No, I'm already in the family. I'm already accepted. I'm already loved. I got a key to prove it. No, the house rules are there not so that you can keep re-upping your worthiness of the condo. The house rules are there so that way the condo exists for everyone else. And you actually look at the law of God, especially the top ten, the Ten Commandments, and you see that those actually exist for the betterment of other people. I don't know, here's one, thou shalt not murder. We all in favor of that one? Yeah, that's a good one. Let's keep that one, right? Let's not steal, right? Those are all there so that way others can uh, can thrive. And so the law, that's what the law of God is intended to do. But God knew that there's no way for us to fulfill it. And God wanted a relationship with us so bad. And so he said, listen, I'm going to actually fulfill the requirements of the law by sending Jesus. So God is both just and gracious at the exact same time. And his way of, his way of justification is not the law, it's grace. And his way of sanctification, which is a fancy word for spiritual growth, is not rules, but the Spirit, the wind of God. And when the Spirit of God comes into your life, here's what the prophet Jeremiah says about it. God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So what that means is when God puts his Spirit into your heart, he writes his law there. And just by you being associated with the Spirit, God says, all the law is fulfilled. It's amazing. 
See, we couldn't do it. God did it. So now we can. And we can do that. We can say that with confidence. So let me give you two practical applications to this. And then I'll be done. Here's the first one. Is that when you really get your head around what Romans 8 is saying. Then that means that as the people of God. We should celebrate as people who've really been saved from something. That we understand what we've been saved from. So... If you're kind of new to church or if you kind of came from a church tradition in which everybody was like really, really quiet and you're like, man, why are these people so clappy and, and you know, why, why are we so expressive? And, and one of the reasons why I've told you before that I want you to be audible in a message, uh, not only for the practical purpose that if you're audible, I'll preach better and shorter, but beyond that is that, is that actually new people that come in actually see that this isn't just a monologue from the sa- stage, but there's actually an energy that's, that's kind of illuminating from the seats, like looking around going, man, this is like living and active. Like this is, like these people really believe this. They're not just listening to some guy drone on on like some homily or something. They actually believe this. And it shows that we are inviting the spirit of God by our response, not just by what's being said from the stage. The same thing is true in worship, right? Worship is not just singing. Worship is our whole lifestyle, but it can be expressed through singing when we gather together. And uh, worship is an expression of joy, It's an expression of affection, and it's an expression of passion. And I know that not everybody is musical. I am not musical at all. I can't sing my way out of a paper bag. I just hope that this mic is never on while I'm singing because it would be really, really bad. And uh, I, I know that everybody's wired up differently. Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are super expressive. Some of us are not. doesn't really matter. How do you express joy? How do you express passion? How do you express affection? Then, man, you, you, you do that. And I know you can do it because I've seen you do it at Banker's Life Fieldhouse. I know you can do it because I've seen you at Lucas Oil Stadium. You didn't know I was watching you. I was watching you like a creeper. All right? I was just watching you worship, and you were going nuts because somebody's moving a ball down a field. Or you're going nuts because somebody can sing really good or play an instrument really good. And I say, man, just take that same energy and passion and channel it into worship. And I look around and at times I just go, man, do these people really believe they've been saved from something? Because, man, if we were, I think we'd be a little more alive. I, 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 last week on Easter, I was kind of standing in the back. I don't know what service it was. It was service 17,000. I don't know. I was, I was dying. And uh, I kind of looked around and, and uh, here at the Northwest Campus, Landon was kind of getting with it. And he just invited everybody to kind of enter in. He's like, hey, man, put your hands together. Come on, man, sing it out. Literally, I'm standing behind this guy who did this right at that moment. He goes, I was like, I'm just going to believe that's a coincidence. But I, and I don't know where you stand with God. But like, if you believe Romans 8, really? Like that's going to be your response is just sort of being kind of ho-hum about it. And if you, can't, if you don't particularly like our style, then I would just encourage you, find a style where you can be joyful and affectionate and passionate because there is a God who, who deserves your worship. Here's the second thing. All right. This shapes the how and the why we serve others. And I can't stress this point enough. I could probably do a whole sermon series on it because this gets so many people in trouble. Either in the sense that whenever we begin to serve in church, we begin to feel like kind of burned out or used up. Or maybe some of us, the motivation for serving is because we're trying to earn somebody's approval in some way. Or we think that maybe, you know, we we don't really believe in the power of the gospel. So we think that God's watching us up there and we're getting an extra special star on our, you know, service chart, you know, for serving every week. Look at me. 
Jesus didn't die on a cross expecting you to pay him back. You do not have to do one thing to earn his love. Uh, uh, Exhibit A, the thief on the cross. That conversation always blows my mind where this thief looks at Jesus and he's just like, hey, Jesus, I know I'm not worthy. He's stuck in this cycle of condemnation. He's guilty of sin. And he looks at Jesus and he just says, I know where I'm going and it ain't where you're going. So would you just at least remember me when you're there? And Jesus turns to him and he just looks him right in the eyes and he says, you'll be with me today. And I'm like, are you serious? There was... Now, now think about all the religious people who'd have a problem with that today. Okay, wait a second. There was no confession of faith. There was no baptism. Uh, there was no evidence of a changed life. How do we know if he was really being serious there as he was saying this? He's probably just in a lot of pain and somewhat delirious. And he'll say anything when you're hanging on a cross. And he didn't serve in kids' ministry one Sunday. All right? And... Uh, <laughs> And I know all the classic Bible answers. Hey, this is prior to the new covenant. Jesus hadn't died yet. It's still Jesus. He's still God. I'm not trying to dismiss any of that stuff, but he's still Jesus, and it shows you his heart. And many of us don't really fully believe that we're worthy of God's love. And you're still trying to earn it. And you want to know, this is going to sound so weird to say the Sunday after Easter. You want to know why I believe that Jesus is God? I think the best evidence that Jesus is God is not that he resurrected from a grave. The best evidence that Jesus is God is the way he treated the people who crucified him after he was resurrected out of the grave. Think about that for a minute. Like if I'm God, like if Jesus was just a man and he somehow pulled off a magic trick and came back from the dead, just think about all the fun he's going to have with the people that crucified him. Like the first place I'm going to go is I'm going to go to Pilate, you know, the guy who just kind of said I washed my hands, and Jesus is going to go, hey, Pilate, you want to have a cup of coffee? You want to talk about truth, right? Where are you at with me now? I, I, would have, I would have gone to the pub where all the Roman soldiers were hanging out, and I would have walked in, and I would have said, you know, the Roman soldiers kind of cast dice for Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross. I would have walked in and said, hey, guys, who got my coat? Can I see, can I see my coat on you? Like, like you know, here, here I am again. I think I would have, like, you know, let Peter sweat it out a little bit. Like, where were you guys in the midst of all that? And yet Jesus is gracious to all those people that nailed him to a tree. And he is gracious to you. And he is gracious to me. And I believe that for many Christians in America today, we have a pretty good understanding of what we're saved from like, some of you were scared into it. Like, I don't want to go to hell when I die. So, yes, I'll, I'll receive Jesus so that I can go to heaven when I die. We've got a pretty good understanding of that. We do not know what we've been saved to. And I refuse to believe in anything that only benefits me when I die. And some of you, that's how you've just sort of reduced it, is I've got my eternal life insurance policy in my back pocket. But nothing about the way that you're living your life has changed. And see, Jesus has saved you from something, but he saved you to something. He didn't just die to give you an escape route from this world. He died so that he could bring a little bit of heaven to earth through you. And so that you might represent Jesus to as many people as possible. Here's what Romans chapter 8 does. Romans chapter 8 hopefully refreshes your understanding of who God is. And it brings life maybe to a dry place in your soul that you've been struggling to water for a long time. I want to show you a picture of one of the driest deserts on the face of the earth. This is the Atacama Desert located in Chile. It's considered to be the, the driest 
place on earth. In fact, some weather stations uh, will indicate that there are parts of this desert that uh, don't receive a single drop of rain for, for nearly a decade. But in 2015, there was these series of abnormal weather mishaps that redirected a large thunderstorm that was out over the ocean directly above the Atacama Desert. And in a single day, the equivalent of seven years of rain fell on that desert. And so the, what the result of that was that this desert, if we go to the next picture, it goes from, it, go to back one more, we missed it. Uh, this desert goes from this, now we got it, this, uh, in a single day of rain. That right there is the driest desert on earth in full bloom. And this is what happens when you and I choose to respond to Jesus and us, we are gasping for the wind of God, gasping for the air of God. And when you begin to open yourself up to what it is that Jesus is offering, he will speak to some of the deadest, driest places of your soul. And he invites you off the cycle of that condemnation. And you, you step up to him and he looks at you with a moistness in his eyes and he just says, man, welcome home. Man, I love you so much. That's the key to transformation that will break us free from this control of sin and condemnation that so many of us are wrestling with even today. And so in this space and time, we're just gonna spend a few moments reflecting and taking communion together, which represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you grabbed one of the cups on your way in. We're just going to spend a few moments just reflecting upon this. Then we are going to worship as people who realize what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. Father, we come to you today, and I pray that your spirit would fall fresh on this room and awaken our hearts so that we might see and know you better. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.